Uh, it's going to be a really fun day today. So uh, on top of really beyond this, right? So we have the sermon and then it gets fun. So uh, we'll, we'll have the sermon now and then later tonight uh, at 5.30, we've got our kids' Christmas play and our Christmas family dinner happening. So at 5.30, we're going to be in here. If you're bringing food, you can drop that off early, but at 5.30, we're going to be in here. The play will start pretty pretty quickly, so make sure you're in here and seated uh, so that we're not in the kids' way as they start to come in and do their, their parts and all that. And then uh, immediately following that, we'll all move into the Life Center for dinner, and there will be a photo booth set up for pictures and and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a blast. All right, so make sure you come back tonight for that. You don't want to miss that. If you've not been to one of these Christmas dinners, you don't want to miss that. We've never had, uh, at least in my tenure, a kid's Christmas play to this extent. Uh, so I'm glad that we're doing that. It's going to be fun. So y'all make sure you're here for that. And then invite friends, invite family, all of that. This is a, we call it a family Christmas dinner, but it's, a, you know, extended family too. So invite people to come with you. All right. Cool. Glad all of you will participate in inviting folks. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm kidding. All right. So Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. As you're turning there, I should introduce myself to you if you're a guest. My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here and, and just glad that you're here. As Patricia mentioned, there are a lot of great churches. We're always glad when you choose us, uh, though I'm certainly partial to this one. Amen? Amen. All right. So... Uh, we started last week kind of a walk through Luke 1 and 2. We're looking at Advent, uh, Advent season. Advent means coming. It means arrival. And so we're looking at the first uh, coming of Christ. We're setting aside these four weeks leading up to Christmas as just a time to, to pause and to reflect, to remember what God has done in Christ for us. That is where He humbly, Jesus humbly exchanges his place in heaven for human flesh, to be born in a manger on earth. But we do that as we look back, we also look forward simultaneously. We're looking forward to his return as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in which when he comes, he'll judge the living and the dead. He'll establish the new heaven and new earth. And this is something that we talked about it pretty extensively last week about that's our hope. Our hope in Christ is that he is coming again. And, and so traditionally, Advent is about remembering the themes uh, of hope, faith, joy, love, peace. Um, this year, we're going to use, as I mentioned a moment ago, Luke 1 and 2. We're going to walk through these things. We're going to look at, at hope, which we did last week. We're going to do faith this week. Then we'll look at joy and peace. Now, a quick word just about the author. I don't think I did this last week. Um, but the author of this gospel, the gospel of Luke, is, of course, Luke. Um, Luke was a doctor. Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. He uh, was someone who came along after. He accompanied Paul as a physician. He is also said to be Paul's um, inseparable companion in ministry. He traveled lots of places with Paul. Luke writes, as far as we know, the book of Luke and Acts as a research project. There is thoughts out there that he wrote Hebrews also, maybe so. Uh, but he writes at least Luke and Acts as a research project uh, on the life of Christ and on the uh, early church beginnings. He wrote this for a wealthy man named Theophilus. Uh, and so that is a little bit of the history behind this book, why it was written. Uh, last week we looked at hope. This week let's look at faith. Uh, but before we do, let's pray. 
God, we are glad to settle ourselves into your presence. As we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, make these words convincing to our hearts and minds. Would you convict us where we may need that? Would you lead us into better understanding where we all need that? Would you help us to trust fully Christ? Lord, I pray that our faith would be strengthened, that our faith would be deepened, and that for some, maybe even in here, that faith would begin today. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when we left Luke last week, we were looking at Mary's response to Gabriel at the end of his visit. So Gabriel shows up on the scene, startles Mary a bit, uh, tells her, you know, there's no need to be afraid. You shouldn't have any fear. Here's why I've come. You're going to bear a child, but the child's going to be conceived in you by the Holy Spirit. This is going to be a miracle of God, an an immaculate conception, right? And and then... um, she leaves off at the end in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So what we saw is that Mary submits herself to God's word and his promises. Now, in other words, what she does is what we looked at last week. She lays the full weight of her hope upon his word and promise. That everything that she has to hope in, she lays on him. She trusts him fully. Now, what we're going to see in the text today is that probably in an effort to further strengthen or fortify her faith, she's going to go on a journey to see her relative Elizabeth, who if you remember last week, uh, uh, Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth had conceived a son in her old age and reminded Mary that nothing is impossible with God. And so uh, let's pick up in verse 39, chapter 1 of Luke and read those first Uh, We're just going to read through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country as a town, uh, sorry, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now there's a lot even happening in these few verses. And there's more happening in the next set of verses we'll read in a moment. But first of all, what we need to see is that this this journey to Elizabeth's house would have taken Mary some 50 to 70 miles, three to four days, somewhere that she walks a lot faster than I do when I'm hiking, and uh, probably had some better help. And, uh, and, And this journey to Elizabeth's house was to see if the angel was right. It was just to simply test to see if what she had saw in this angel was true. She'd probably not talk to anyone about it. And so immediately she's like, I can go to Elizabeth and confirm whether or not I'm crazy or whether or not that was real. And so she travels to go and see Elizabeth. She wants to see that if he's right. And if he is right, what she determines, I'm sure, is that she would have her own faith in God's word to her strengthened. 
That by seeing Elizabeth, by seeing the word of the Lord come true in Elizabeth, she would have her own faith strengthened. That what he said to me will surely come true also. And I can stand on that. I can believe that. And so right out of the gate, upon the initial greeting, God strengthens Mary's faith with Elizabeth's response. He empowers Elizabeth with, with, the, uh, with his own spirit, it says. Meaning that he gives her the spirit of prophecy. She has the ability to, to speak things that she does not understand, that she doesn't, would not have known otherwise God. God had planted them in her. And, and through that Holy Spirit-empowered greeting, what we see is that she begins to proclaim the very things that Mary had already heard. It was through that greeting that Mary strengthened uh, her faith would have been strengthened. It, it was through that that those words that confirmed what the angel had said of those things that Elizabeth surely could not have known, that Mary would have found a, a deeper faith, a more strengthened faith. And Elizabeth, though having received her own miracle, I just think this is a super cool insight. It doesn't really go well with what we're talking about today. But in her, she's received her own miracle. She's, she too is going to bear a child. This is going to be John the Baptist. And, and, and she's over the moon excited for Mary. She's over the moon excited about what Mary's news is, about what's happening in Mary, because she knows that Mary has her Savior in her womb. And, and, and what we see is that she's also humbled by Mary's visit. She makes it very clear. Yeah, she said, and, and for what reason should the, should the mother of my Lord come and see me? Those who are full of God's Spirit have low thoughts of their own merits. And they have high thoughts of God's favor on people. They, they, they begin to see how much bigger God is than more, than, more so than just what He's doing in us or in me. And so as great as the first six verses are, really verse 45 rises out of the text, grabs our attention with great force when Elizabeth says this, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's just an incredible verse. It's an incredible verse. It's one of those that as you're reading it, it, just, it literally jumps off the page because of what's being said. I just want to say a few things about it before we move forward into the next section of verses. The, the word blessed is used here to describe being favored by divine grace. That divine grace, that favor of divine grace, leads to happiness. Blessed are you. As we saw last week, Mary had nothing about her that God should choose her as the mother of his son. She'll say as much in the next few verses here in a moment. She was simply chosen by divine grace. But she isn't just blessed because she was going to give birth or because she was chosen to give birth. The words here say that she is blessed because she believed that she would give birth. That there was blessing in believing. There was blessing in faith, trusting what God had said. There was a blessing there. That is why it says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment, that God would bring it to completion, that, he would, that it would be brought to fruition, if you will. This was going to happen. Blessed is she for believing it. She was confident in God's word. She trusted what he said. She was relying on it to come to pass, and she is putting her faith in him to bring it to completion. Now, Hebrews 11.6 says there in that great chapter, Hebrews 11 is a great chapter, what we affectionately refer to the hall of faith, if you will. It's just full of stories of people who trusted God in the Old Testament, who had faith in Him, though they did not see what was promised to them. They didn't see it in their life, but they trusted Him that it would come to pass. This is what it says there about faith. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it's more than just mental belief that there is a God. It's a, it's a belief that there is a God who exists, and I believe that he wants to reward me as I seek him, that, that he has good for me. The 16th century theologian John Calvin said this, he said, we shall have a complete definition of faith if we say that it is a firm and sure knowledge of God's favor towards us based on the truth of a free promise in Christ revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, faith is a Trinitarian work in our life. Faith is established by knowledge of God's favor towards us. Faith is based on this free promise that we receive in Christ Jesus. Free grace is given to us because of the work of God, not because of our own work. And it's revealed to our minds. It's, it's sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian work. All of the Godhead is at work in fortifying our faith and strengthening our faith. Praise God. Therefore, we can conclude then that divine grace comes to those who believe in the word of the Lord. In other words, believing souls are blessed souls. Those who believe God's word are blessed because the word will not return to them void. It will never fail them. The faithfulness of God is the blessedness, or I'm sorry, is the blessed faith of the saints. So the faithfulness of God is that He blesses saints with faith. He gives them faith. And then it is our faith, in turn, in God's Word, that rescues us from the lowest misery and makes us partakers of true happiness. This is the kind of faith that we see in Mary. Now, so often I've heard that Christian faith, or that the Christian life, takes great faith. That you can't be someone of small faith, that it takes a great faith. You must be doing this or you must be doing that. You must go over there or you must go over here. You must have a large faith if you're going to magnify Christ in a way that he is worthy of. And, and then I read Jesus' teachings, right? And Jesus says to his disciples, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. With the faith of a mustard seed, you can uproot this tree. Now, it isn't about moving mountains or uprooting trees. Otherwise, none of us have faith. None of us have ever said to a mountain, move and it move, literally. But what it is about, what it's, what it's saying, Jesus is using, um, he's using an exaggerated statement to make a point. He, he is saying that it's not about moving the mountains or about uprooting the trees. It's about faith in a God who has the power to move mountains and uproot trees. It's about trusting Him to do what He says He will do. It's faith that believes Gabriel's words like Mary when he says to Mary, nothing will be impossible for God. Listen to me. I want you to write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. To live a faithful life that magnifies Christ, you do not need great faith. You need faith in a great Savior. Amen? To live a faithful life that magnifies Christ, you do not need great faith. You only need faith in a great Savior. And this is exactly what these next verses are going to show us about Mary's faith. Verses 46 through 55. There, and let me just introduce them, and then I'll read them to you. They're called the Magnificat. 
This, there's no such thing as a magnificent cat either, so don't hear that, all right? That's non-existent. Cats are not magnificent, sorry. They're called the Magnificat because the title is taken from the first word of verse 46 in the Latin Vulgate translation, which was the word Magnificat, which means magnifies. This whole thing is about magnifying the Lord. One commentator said the purpose, one of the purposes, at least, of the Magnificat is to provide an initial characterization of the, uh, I'm sorry, of the God whose purpose shapes the following story. So, so what we see here in the Magnificat, what we see here in the words of Mary as she begins to rejoice in God, as she begins to magnify her Lord, is she is laying out for us the big story of the Bible. She, she's making it plain for us to see. That is the story of God's redeeming work on behalf of mankind. She's laying it out, and this is why her soul is going to rejoice. These verses here contain numerous allusions to the law. Numerous allusions to the prophets. Numerous allusions to the Psalms. These, this entire passage is a point-by-point look at the covenant promises of God to His people. And clearly, do not miss this, very clearly, Mary's heart and mind were saturated with God's Word. Very clearly, her faith is strengthened because her heart and mind are saturated by God's Word. It is God's Word which informs her faith. It is God's Word which fortifies her faith. And it's God's Word which helps her stand in faith now and to magnify the Lord. It's His work. Let's look at Luke 1, 46-56. So in response to, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is fascinating. So let me, let me just remind you before we get really rolling in this, as we prepare to break this down, I think it's worth repeating. To, to live a faithful life that magnifies Christ, you do not need great faith. You only need faith in a great Savior. This is what it takes to magnify the Lord in a faithful way day in and day out. It's faith in a great Savior. It's not great faith. All right, it, it, You, with your little faith and, and with your small ideas and with your little bit of trust in the Lord can magnify God in very large ways because He is great, not because you are great. Amen? What, what, what warmth for our souls as we find ourselves weary when it comes to walking by faith. So let's look at Mary's song. Uh, let me just break this down in a few parts. I think what we see here are at least some characteristics of faithful Christians. And so I'm not real creative, and that's how I titled it, all right? Characteristics of a faithful Christian. 
Number one, faithful Christians praise God for what He has done. One one of the things we do immediately as faithful Christians is we begin to praise God for the work that He has done. In, In verses 46 through 48, we see Mary praising God for His wonderful work in her life. He she attributes everything to Him. But, but it isn't just the singing a song on Sunday morning kind of praise, right? It is the kind of singing where you cry joyously. Maybe you weep bitterly. It's that kind of joyous singing. It's that kind of praise in the Lord in which your whole being is caught up in praise. It says that her soul and, and her uh, spirit rejoice. When the Bible uses the word soul and spirits, it's using the words for the very deepest inner parts of our hearts and minds. Like it's talking about everything that we have in us is rejoicing in praise before God. This is where Mary finds herself in this moment. Praising work must be a work of the soul. It it, it must be something that's happening on the inside of us. We must feel it deep within. One of the closest examples I could come to this was just some praise I had for one of my kids the other day. We've lived out in the country for a while. We didn't have a great yard to ride a bike in. Finally, we moved to town, and my, my son, he, he's six. He's beyond the age of learning how to ride a bike. That's my fault. But anyway, and, and so he's wanting to learn how to ride his bike. We're out in the driveway, and I'm pushing him back and forth, and we're trying to figure it out, and, and he just he can't get it, right? I mean, he's going he's gonna to face plant the concrete if I let go. And, and I realize that, and so I, I just, we, we had to get to play practice, all right? So, so we just had to stop. Well, the next day I come home from work, and, and, and Wells, my, my six-year-old, he is beyond thrilled. He got out there with his helmet on, pushed himself down a hill, learned to ride his bike without dad. That kind of hurt my heart, but he did it. He, would, he was so determined. If you know my son, he, he gets so upset so easily over not being able to do something. When I saw him excited that he had done something like that, my soul rejoiced with him. From the inner parts of me, I felt joy. I cried a little. All right, It got dusty in the room as I was talking to him. It, it was wonderful. And that, that's the kind of joy even more so that Mary has here. It's her soul. It's her very spirit rejoicing. She's beaming with joy for the Lord. It's overflowing out of her. Now we may ask, why? Why is Mary's soul and spirit stirred up this way? Well, she makes it very clear that she's rejoicing in her Savior. That, that Mary, just like you and me, needs a Savior. Mary, just like you and I, rejoices because God met her need. He was faithful. She knew the Word. She knew the work. She knew the works that had gone on throughout the Old Testament. What we know as the Old Testament. She knew all of this. She knew the stories. She knew that God had been doing something. And now God was going to bring it to fruition and He was going to use her to do it. But even more than using her to do it, what she rejoiced in is I have a Savior now. That that Jesus is going to be born. This is amazing to Mary. One of the reasons it's amazing to her is the same reason it ought to be amazing to us. She was of humble estate. Now this isn't just talking about her physical estate. Going to be married to a carpenter living in a small town outside of Bethlehem. Like, this, this isn't referring so much to her humble estate. In other words, Mary is rejoicing for the same reasons we ought to, because what she knew is that I was unknown 
I, I was despised for my sin. I was separated from God. But, but God cast His free grace upon me. And now He's delivering a Savior. And my soul rejoices. Remember, you don't need great faith. Rather, you need faith in a great Savior. This is what we see in Mary. God often uses people who are not great in the world's eyes to bring about His purposes, to accomplish His purposes. Her happiness, as she calls herself blessed from generation to generation, consists in nothing else but in what God has given her as a gift of His grace. Mary is not to be worshipped in some way. Mary is like you and me. She was in need of a Savior, and God chose her by divine grace to bear His child. And so we, too, rejoice in Jesus. We worship Christ. Humility is accepting, as Mary did, the gifts of God. Humility is not only accepting the gifts of God, it's using them to praise and serve Him. Do not belittle, do not deny, do not ignore your gifts as some sort of act of superhumility. Right? Sometimes we like to act like we're not gifted. Sometimes we like to act like we don't have anything. Sometimes we want to make ourselves look like we're of poor estate. That's not humility. That's a false humility that doesn't bring glory to anything. But yourself, really. But, but what we can do is we can accept the gifts of God. That God has gifted us. That God is doing things in our lives. We can accept those things and we can turn them for praise. We can use them to praise His glorious grace. To thank Him for what He's done in our lives. To give Him all the glory. We, we, we thank God for the things that He does in our lives. We use them for His glory. I love what Charles Spurgeon adds about faith. About great faith. He says that the faith that shook the walls of Jericho, the faith that raised the dead, the faith that stopped the mouths of lions, was not greater than that of a poor sinner who dares to trust the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ when he is in the jaws of all his sins. Praise God. How many times do I read Bible stories of faithful saints and think, man, I, I, like I, I'm just happy to get out of bed in the morning. I'm not standing in a fiery furnace. I'm not being threatened with having my head ripped from my body by a lion. What great faith they had. But I love the insight that Spurgeon adds and that it's not that it's it's not any different than the kind of faith that a poor sinner has in God so that his sins may be forgiven. That's great faith. That's faith in a great savior. That's faith that matters. The second characteristic I think that we see here is faithful Christians glorify God for His power, His holiness, and His mercy. Faithful Christians glorify God for His power, holiness, and mercy. In verses 49 through 50, Mary glorifies God, talking about His power, His might, talking about His holiness, talking about His mercy. She ascribes all the might to God who has worked on her behalf. She says, He is mighty. He has done great things for me, and holy is His name. But believers in here, let your faith be strengthened like Mary's. Because glorious things can be expected from the One who is both mighty and holy. From the One who can do anything. And from the One who will do everything well and everything for the best. 
He can be trusted. Let your faith grow in Christ. And then she says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. His mercy is His compassion towards sinners. And so she's saying that His mercy, His compassion towards sinners is for all of those who would fear Him from generation to generation. Meaning it's unending. It is His loyal love towards His people that we see here in His mercy. His mercy is given to those who fear Him. Fear here means a reverent awe. It's not only to be afraid of. It's to be afraid of in a way that you think something is awesome. One of the greatest examples of this in the New Testament is when the disciples see Jesus calm the wind and the waves. They look at Him, they look at each other, and they say, what manner of man is this? What kind of man can calm the wind and the waves is what they're saying. That's the kind of fear we're to have in God. It's a reverent awe in His majesty and His power that He is big enough to do whatever He may wish. And we trust that whatever He wishes, whatever He does, is good. It's this reverent awe that He alone is holy, that He is mighty, and that we are not. It's that kind of reverent awe of God that leads to faith. It leads you to trust Him. It leads you to obedience. You're like, yeah, I can trust that guy. He, he moved heaven and earth to save my soul. He can be trusted. He provides even now when I'm at the end of my rope. He can be trusted. Even when I'm forgetting God and I find myself living a faithless life because I just kind of think I can stand under my own might, He's still faithful. He can be trusted. That's the kind of faith we're to have in God. It's the faith that when the rubber meets the road, when things get real, when, when life gets tough, we trust Him. We see that He is good. It also leads us to humility. What we see is that when God pours out His mercy on sinners, He forgives them of their rebellion. He heals them of their sins. He accepts them according to Jesus' sacrifice. And He crowns them with glory forever from generation to generation as long as this big round world, yes it's round, keeps spinning. This is the kind of God we serve. He's good to us. He's merciful and mighty. Faithful Christians, number three, trust God's power above worldly power. Faithful Christians trust God's power above worldly power. In verses 51 through 53, what Mary begins to show us is that she trusts God's power above worldly power. I love what we see here. Mary's used of past tense where she says, He has brought down, He has exalted, what she's showing is that she is certain that God will do what He's going to do. She is certain of His work. She's certain of what providing a Savior will accomplish. Her faith is strengthened in this. Her faith is so strong that she speaks as if it's already happened. She trusts His power above worldly power. She says, I know what the world may look like right now, but I know what my God has promised and I trust Him. He's more powerful. And she believes it. Now, God's power seems to always be in direct contrast to worldly power, doesn't it? 
I love this. It's beautiful. Mary says that when God shows the strength of His arm, He scatters the proud and brings down the mighty. You know who the mighty and the strong are? They're the ones that you and I would consider powerful by our standards. That when God shows the strength of His arm, He brings down the mighty. He scatters the proud. But at the same time, while He's showing the strength of His arm, He is lifting up broken losers and filling the beggars of mercy, which would be the least powerful in the world that we see today. That that God, by the same might, is scattering, but also uplifting. By the same might, He is bringing down, but also filling up. This is wonderful news for sinners. That God takes losers like you and me, and He transforms our lives according to His own power. That because of His great might, you and I can stand with joyous singing that our spirit and our soul would be brought up into praise with Him. But not under our own power, under His. As a good God, He glories in exalting those who humble themselves. He glories in speaking assurance to those who fear Him. Those who see their need for God are abundantly filled. Psalm 36, 8 says this. It says that they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So the person who sees their need for God and finds it in Him will feast on His abundance and will drink from His river which never runs out. Those who are worn out and burdened by this life will find rest. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a great promise for our souls. We also see in John that those who thirst are called to him to come and drink. John seven thirty seven. Jesus stands up in the middle of a great crowd and he cries out, If anyone thirst." Let him come to me and drink. What a great promise for our souls that you can trust God's power above worldly power. Nothing makes God the Father happier than filling His people with all things according to His powerful provision. Jesus is still doing this today as He reigns in heaven. He is our mediator according to Hebrews. And don't miss this. If if the power of Christ rest on weak people, and and you and I are weak, then then the, the one magnificent, glorious conclusion that we can come to is that we qualify as weak people, as losers, for the power of Christ to rest on us. It's not when we make ourselves strong. It's not when we present ourselves undefiled and holy before the Lord. It's when we become weak. It's when we embrace who we truly are. Our weakness. It's in that moment that He gives us His power. It's in that moment that He makes us strong. As one commentator pointed out, he said, the grace and power of God interlock with human lives at the point of mortal weakness. Praise God. It it, it is in our weakness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we are made strong. 
that we can trust Him, that He fulfills that, that lack in us. He makes us powerful. And therefore, I just say, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Lay all of your weakness, lay all of your burden at His feet. Lay it on Him. Let Him take it as He's invited you to do. And have faith that He will fill you up. But beware. If, if you choose to hold on to your own power, if you choose to try and fill up your own self, then you will be sent away empty, it says. But the prideful are sent away empty. The rich are sent away empty. Number four, the final point here. Faithful Christians remember God's acts of mercy. Faithful Christians remember God's acts of mercy. Finally, what we see here in verses 40, I'm sorry, 54 and 55 is that Mary remembers. She recalls God's acts of mercy. She recalls His very words to Abraham. She's trusting Him. She's reminding herself that He is fulfilling His promise. This is beautiful. Believers, let your faith be strengthened as Mary's was by remembering His acts of mercy from both the testimonies of His Word by reading His Word and also from your own lives. Recall His goodness to you. Keep a journal. Write things down. Whatever it takes. But recall His goodness to you. Remember His mercy to you. Trust it when you don't want to trust it. Have faith in Him when your faith is waning. Stand firm. Look to the Scriptures and be reminded of how God worked from the beginning of Genesis, chapter 315, or right at 315 when He makes the initial promise to a broken humanity that He'll send a head crusher. All the way through, all the way through the Old Testament, God's keeping His promises. We see it fulfilled here with Christ. God kept His promises. We looked at that a little more in depth last week. I don't want to rehash it today. But what we see from it is that we can trust that He'll continue to keep His promises. God's past faithfulness strengthens our faith for the future. Again, John Calvin says this. He says, there is an inseparable, inseparable link between faith and the Word. That, that when I read the Word, it, it directly affects my faith. He says, they can no more be separated than rays of light from the sun. That our, our faith is strengthened by God's Word. We see it very clearly here. Mary's recalling, again, the law. She's recalling the prophets. She's recalling uh, the Psalms. She's reciting these things. She, she recites pieces of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, almost verbatim. She knew God's Word. She, she's trusting it. It's in that that her faith is strengthened. It, in looking back at His Word, in looking back at His work in the Bible and in our lives, we see that God does not forget His Word. He is always faithful to honor it. What He has promised, He will bring to completion. God continues to keep His promise of mercy to Abraham and his descendants by showing mercy to sinners like you and me. Do you realize that? that? That when God promises to Abraham in Genesis that I will show mercy to you and your descendants, what, he's, what we're experiencing now is the fulfillment of that promise, even as you and I trust the mercies of God? We're seeing God fulfill a promise even today. So maybe you stand on the fence and you're like, well, I, don't, I don't know how 
But I just don't see God fulfilling promises still today. It feels like God's absent. God is not absent. But the, the belief of anyone in here is a testament to the very presence of God in their life. It's a testament to His goodness, to His mercy, to keeping His word. He has not changed, friend. He has not changed. He can be trusted. Our faith does not fall on hard soil with God. It produces great fruit. He will continue to save people. He will continue to be at work in your life and in the lives of many after you until Christ returns. Look, the, the pregnancy of Mary, the, the birth of Christ, those were just the first steps, right? They're the first steps of bringing to fruition what God promised, a head crusher. In, in that, what we see are the first steps towards His death. He must be born if He's going to die. It's a great worship song by Shane and Shane about, it's a, it's a Christmas song, He was born to die. Absolutely. Praise God He was. So it gets us to His death, but He, he wasn't born to stay dead. He, he was born also to rise again. To, to live bodily in heaven forever so that you and I have an advocate who is like us in heaven even now that can be trusted, that our faith can be placed in, who looks not on you with discontent, who looks not on you with any kind of evil or ill will, who looks on you with mercy as he experienced the same hurts, the same pains, the same temptations, the same loss, even more so than what we experience today. He can be trusted. There is nothing to lose and everything to gain by coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being finally, fully filled. Nothing to lose. Jesus said as much. He said in Matthew 16, 25, He said it elsewhere, but He said here, for whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, take your life into your own hands, buddy. Think that you're doing a good work. Think that you're saving it. But beware that you're not. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is in essence saying what he said in John 10.10, 10, that the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy your life, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. There is nothing to lose and everything to gain by trusting Christ today. And remember, it's worth repeating one more time, to live a faithful life that magnifies Christ, you do not need great faith. You need faith in a great Savior. Would you stand to your feet this morning?